Thank you very much, Mr. President, for giving me the immense honor to speak in tonight's debate. After four terms on committee and many, many hours of my vacation spent putting our term cards together, this will be my first paper speech. So I'm very grateful for the opportunity to be here tonight. When I was sat in this chamber a year ago for the first time, I could never have imagined that I'd be stood here before you today running for president. I could also never have imagined that I'd be doing so with a broken arm, having asked the hospital if they could match my cast to the color of my dress, which they kindly did. Um, but I guess it's the first time for everything. Now, anyone who believes in indefinite growth in anything physical on a physically finite planet is either mad or an economist. <laughs> I'm an economist myself, it's okay. Um, those words were said by Boulding in the 1970s and ring even truer today in the face of rising inequality. Economic growth is an objective that we watch leader upon leader pursue mindlessly. Through the use of GDP, we constantly monitor its movements, we measure it to the decimal place, and we use it as a metric by which to judge the health of our economies and the success of our governments. However, as issues of inequality and climate change come into the center stage, there is a bigger movement towards refocusing what our policy objectives should be. Nations such as Scotland, New Zealand and Bhutan have all made moves towards going beyond mindless GDP growth in their national accounts. I have three main points for you tonight, ladies and gentlemen. Firstly, prioritizing economic growth above all else does more harm than good. It helps the super rich get richer and the ordinary people to stay poor. Secondly, the prioritizing economic equality is better for social advancement and lifting people out of poverty. I will cite the numbers and aim to show you that economic inequality actually harms growth. Thirdly, how given climate constraints, it becomes even more important to shift our priorities to ensure that our children and grandchildren have an improved standard of living, but ultimately to ensure that our children and grandchildren can actually have a life at all. Before I go further into my points, it is my duty and indeed my honor to introduce tonight's opposition speakers. First up, we have Chloe Glynn, a third year at St. Anne's College and the union's development officer. She claims to be a woman in STEM, despite studying geography. <laughs> Chloe has currently taken a year out of her degree. So one could say that just like trickle-down economics, Chloe Glynn does not work. <laughs> is also the union's development officer, and the largest thing she's developed in this role is an addiction to the union bar. <laughs> I can only imagine how much we've raised through Chloe's drinks expenditure. <laughs> Second on the side opposition, you will hear from Mr. Peter Bone, the Conservative MP for Wellingborough and Rushton. Now, Mr. Bone has clearly had a flourishing political career, having served as deputy leader of the House of Commons in 2022, However, Mr. Bone has not had the best relationship with the media. Having been described as Britain's meanest boss for his opposition to the minimum wage, and also as nepotistic for previously employing his wife as his executive secretary. Now, I think these qualities, being a mean boss and nepotism, would make Mr. Bone a great fit amongst union presidents. <laughs> now, speaking third, we have Juan de Vila, a fourth year engineering student at St. John's College, my own. Now I must admit, 
When I found out that Juan was running for president from the same college as myself, I had the same reaction as probably most of you in this room. Who is that? <laughs> now, according to his Instagram, Juan, one of Juan's hobbies is pheasant shooting. And so it's probably unsurprising that Juan was previously president of the Oxford University Conservative Association and is speaking against economic equality tonight. <laughs> Lastly, we have the pleasure to listen to the Right Honourable Lord Hannan, who is a life peer at the House of Lords, advisor to the UK Board of Trade, and one of the founders of the Vote Leave campaign. Lord Hannan is the second ex-ALCA president I have introduced tonight, and given that Lord Hannan graduated from Oriel College, I suspect the quality of his speech will not be fantastic. Um, <laughs> Lord Hannan was an outspoken critic of lockdown during the pandemic, calling it a confiscation of liberty. If Lord Hannan thinks that COVID lockdown policy was a curtailing of human rights, I wonder what his reaction to the Tories' Rwanda policy will be. Mr. President, these are your speakers, and they are indeed most welcome. When considering this question before us today, we must consider, ultimately, what is our policy goal? When we, whether we prioritize economic equality or economic growth, what is it we are trying to achieve? I will take the stance tonight that ultimately our policy goal should be social welfare and improving the standard of living while looking after our planet. And this brings me on to my first point, that prioritizing economic growth above all else does more harm than it does good. 20th century economists assured us that if economic growth creates inequality, don't try and redistribute it, because more growth will benefit everyone. Except it doesn't, and it won't. Let's not forget, we live in a society where 1% of the world's population own over half of the world's wealth. Our pursuit of GDP growth has widened the gap between the richest and the poorest, and it has benefited those that were already well off. Early this week, we were lucky enough to host Bernie Sanders here at the Union, so I thought I'd take the USA as an example. Since the 1980s, real GDP in the United States has grown by about 130%. But despite this, the bottom half of the American population have been completely shut off from this economic growth. Wages stagnated, life satisfaction flatlined, poverty grew, and the environment got worse. I've said it before, and I'll say it again, trickle-down economics does not work. It just doesn't. This idea that laissez-faire thinkers have worshipped that cutting taxes for the rich will create more jobs for the middle and lower classes, meaning that economic growth is felt by everyone, is just fundamentally flawed. Unfortunately, as it turns out, no thank you, no thank you. Many, many governments in the past have. Um, but unfortunately, as it turns out, those at the top do not use tax cuts to help the working classes. They use it to hoard their wealth and keep wages and working conditions lower. We see this time and time and again. Amazon and Jeff Bezos, aided by tax cuts, have enough money to pay their employees a fair wage and provide reasonable working conditions. However, Bezos will continue to increase his fortune through exploitation and underpayment of workers, and no one except executives at Amazon will actually benefit from this. Secondly, economic inequality hurts economic growth. 
OECD data has repeatedly proven that a lack of economic investment derived from inability and inaccessibility to financial wealth and education is a key factor to driving inequality in economies from around the world. Recent OECD, OEDC forecasting has placed the UK as the only developed economy, including Russia, to predict economic downturn in 2023, attributing a large part of this to be due to the weakening of the welfare state. In the UK, the number of households with children experiencing food poverty has nearly doubled in the past year, affecting almost 4 million children. The Food Foundation has found that 80% of British people support expanding the free school meals programme to all children whose families are on universal credit. Pressure is mounting on the government to make this move amid rising household bills and increased poverty. And yet, in pursuit of growth, 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 we have left behind what is the future of our society. When so many children are growing up in poverty and are going to school hungry, these children who become the future of our workforce and our economy cannot achieve their full potential. It is time to stop chasing endless GDP growth at the expense of our people and to put social welfare first. No, thank you, Spencer. In the face of environmental threats, we cannot keep striving to produce and to consume more and more goods. Our planet simply can't take it. It's not possible to have your cake and to eat it too. It is time to put people's welfare above mindless growth that does not trickle down. Vote for realism, vote for prioritizing ordinary people, and vote for the proposition tonight. Thank you. Good evening, honorary members. I must say it's an absolute privilege to be speaking in the chamber once again, particularly in the context of being a presidential candidate. I must admit, however, my luck with paper speeches has not changed. From being called up with less than 24 hours notice to argue that this house must abolish, abolish organized religion, to stepping in for a committee member to argue that this house would regret electoral democracy, it is only fitting that I would lose a coin toss and argue economic growth over economic equality at presidential hustings. However, in the spirit of debate, I shall attempt to argue this case. You, shall just, you have just heard from the ex-Liberian Deesha Hegday, a history and economics student at St. John's College. Deesha is a great presidential candidate. She has proven herself to be a forward-thinking member of committee, but clearly maintains the utmost respect for tradition by following in the footsteps of the previous president by getting auto-resigned from access committee. <laughs> <laughs> Albeit she did it faster than he ever did. Uh, Deesha started off her time in Oxford well by applying to St. John's, famous, famously known for having the largest endowment fund of 600 million. But these wise financial decisions have only dwindled with her degree as she attempts to drop economics. And even worse, forgets to practice what she pre preaches about economic equality by posting her iconic fit checks online as she sports a number of fast fashion brands. Speaking so <laughs> Speaking says second is Nadia Witten, the youngest MP. So young, she looks as if she could be a student. Let's just hope her arguments are not that of a teenager's. 
speaking third in proposition is Professor Jajit Chadha, the director of, Na of the National Institute of Economic and Social Research. With a list of accolades to his names, he needs no inter introduction. However, upon further research, it is clear that Professor Chadha, like many of the members in this room, is a, is a shameless social climber when it comes to academia. Having been a professor at Kent, St Andrews and a fellow at Clare College, Cambridge, who is going to break the news to him that the Oxford Union is a separate entity to the University of Oxford? <laughs> Finally, speaking in proposition is Professor Jonathan Porters from King's College, London. Having spent most of his career in the civil service dedicating his time to economics, it is only fitting that his political initiation takes place at what was described a politician's playground in the book Chums. I'm sure Deesha and I really live up to Simon Cooper's expectations of an all-boys club Oxford Union. On a serious note, Professor Porters led the Cabinet Office's economic analysis and economic policy work during the financial crisis and on the G20 London Summit in 2009. I can only hope he tackles the proposition's argument better than he did the financial crisis. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> Tonight, this motion attempts to uncover whether we believe the living standards of people around the world will benefit most from prioritizing economic growth or equality. To this, I say we simply are not in a place to prioritize economic equality when there is still growth to be done on a global scale. To prove my case, I will focus on three main points. Economic growth is foundational to social, social equality. Economic growth is foundational to solving environmental problems. And that economic growth is foundational and a preconditioned to economic equality. In the 19th century, industrial revolution, with, e with global economic growth catalyzed technological innovations that have allowed humanity to overcome obstacles of hunger, environmental de degradation, and health, each of which will now be addressed in turn. For health, for most of human history, human life expectancy was 25 to 30 years old, meaning that many of the speakers here today would be, conce would be considered ancient relics, unable to impact their wisdom on the chamber tonight. This has skyrocketed to 75 years today, which is fundamentally a result of economic growth. Rising incomes have allowed people to increase their quality of life through access to sufficient and nutritious food and essential healthcare services. Alongside this, economic growth has catalyzed rapid advancements in technology, such as discovery of new medicines and the creation of new medical infrastructure and treatments which have revolutionized healthcare. For example, in the 20th century, three infectious diseases, tuberculosis, pneumonia and diarrhea were responsible for 50% of all deaths. However, economic growth and technological improvements have led to these and other infectious diseases that have killed billions throughout human history being virtually eliminated or drastically reduced. However, many countries in the world continue to suffer from broken and dysfunctional healthcare systems, a legacy of poor econ economic growth, we are, of which we in the West have been fortunate to experience. Allowing these countries to grow economically would mean that billions more lives could be saved. Second, hunger and food production. In 1803, Thomas Malthus theorized that population growth would exponentially expand, rapidly outpacing finite resources and supplies. However, his predictions failed to account for economic growth, that economic growth would catalyze technological advancements and our ability to harness nature to meet our needs through, through enhanced agricultural productivity. This is clearly shown through the Green Revolution, which occurred following the end of World War II, where new technologies, including high-yielding yielding crop varieties, chemical fertilizers, and pesticides, enhanced agricultural productivity.
This contributed to the widespread reduction of poverty and averted hunger for millions. These advancements were costly, and so economic growth was, and continues to be, necessary to, to allow us to overcome fears of food shortages, which continue to haunt communities since the 19th century. Economic growth has not only had social, but also environmental benefits. Economic growth has been critiqued for harming the environment. However, economic growth and technological innovation has actually allowed us to improve the environment through increasing efficiency and productivity. For example, the Netherlands is home to 0.04% of global agricultural land, and yet they are the second largest global exporter of food. Economic growth, has has, economic growth was essential to, build, to building greenhouses which use artificial light and climate controlled conditions to grow crops 24-7, rapidly increasing productivity in a sustainable way. This, in, this intensification of agriculture further, further means that land can be set aside for biodiversity protection, not only sustaining, but regenerating the environment. Therefore, although demonized for creating social and environmental problems, the opposite is true. Economic growth is fundamental in addressing the problems of food insecurity and environmental harm. Alongside this, economic growth has allowed us to reduce high levels of, uh, high levels of pollution, which now only remain high in areas with a lack of technological development. This raises an important question at the heart of the motion. I have argued that economic growth is essential, but growth for whom? Arguing for economic equality emerges from a privileged Western position where we have historically benefited from economic growth, whilst others in the developing world have not. Economic equality itself is reliant on the growth of, the, of these marginalized nations, and so is a prerequisite to achieving economic equality that the proposition is arguing for. To finish my case, I present you with a solution. The term economic growth says nothing about the rate at which this growth will occur. Economic growth is often assumed to be rapid and exponential, leading to critiques and concerns about the social and environmental issues that it will generate. In this last part, in this last part of my speech, I argue that growth is essential, but we should pursue a sustainable form of economic growth which benefits both people and the environment and will ultimately contribute towards a more equitable society. To take one example, investing in renewable energy technologies has been linked to sustainable economic growth by providing an energy source which is negligible of environmental impacts. Alongside this, it creates new jobs, helping to alleviate pressures of unemployment and economic inequality. This vision was articulated in the Build Back Better model of the COVID-19 recovery, which unfortunately failed to materialize as other traditional forms of economic growth were prioritized. This alternative form of sustainable growth where the quality, not, not this economic growth has, oh sorry, where the quality and quantity of economic growth is the main concern, would allow us to create a more socially just and environmentally sustainable society, one in which economic equality could then be feasibly achieved through growth. For anyone dreaming, for anyone dreaming of economically, socially, and, and an environmentally sustainable planet, I urge you to vote nay. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. President, and I want to thank the Oxford Union for inviting me here tonight. It's a real pleasure to follow on from Chloe Glynn, who, despite losing that coin toss, did an admirable job of putting forward the case of the opposition. But I will say, speaking about relics in the room is no way to talk about her fellow teammates. 
Now, before I get into the meat of my argument, I want to just go back to the motion. It is that this House would prioritise economic equality over economic growth. Now, I'm not going to argue that growth is bad or even that it's not important, nor am I going to argue that the end goal should be economic equality, despite, of course, being a socialist. Because all that is required to support this motion is a recognition that reducing economic inequality in our society is an important and pressing aim, more important and pressing than the goal of pure economic growth measured by increases in GDP and is therefore worthy of prioritisation above it. That's what I aim to convince you of. The fact that we live in a highly unequal society is obvious to me, as I'm sure it is to you. I represent Nottingham East. My city is the 11th most deprived of 317 districts in England, and we have one of the lowest rates of disposable income in the country. I've had people turn up to my constituency office who have not eaten a hot meal in days. I've witnessed parents break down in tears as they cannot afford to provide for their children. I've spoken to constituents who've worked their whole lives but have just pennies in their savings accounts. Anywhere in the world, these kinds of situations would be heartbreaking. But what makes this particularly unjust, particularly cruel, particularly sickening, is that this is happening here in the sixth largest economy in the world. Is the opposition really saying that there is nothing we can do to right these wrongs now, that we have to wait for our economy to grow before we can tackle the poverty that is ruining the lives of millions of people today. We should reject that entirely. The failure to tackle economic inequality is a political choice. We're already a wealthy country, but wealth is not evenly distributed. Instead, it's concentrated in the hands of a privileged few. Because Britain's a great place to be rich. The richest 10% of households have incomes among the highest in Europe. But if you're working class, or even if you're middle class, the truth is that you'd often be better off elsewhere. Middle-income British households are 9% poorer than their counterparts in France, while the poorest fifth would be 20% richer in Germany. So to prioritise economic equality would be to act in the interest not just of the most marginalised, but also average income households that are getting poorer and poorer through no fault of their own. No, thank you. Now, the opposition argues that this is a noble aim, but prioritising equality is not the way to alleviate poverty or falling incomes. They claim that a rising tide lifts all boats that growth in GDP would bring increasing wealth and higher living standards to all sections of society, even that equality is necessary so that the rich have capital to invest in job creation. Well, you'll forgive me if I'm sceptical of their economic predictions, given that Mr Bone once argued that the introduction of the minimum wage would, and I quote, condemn hundreds of thousands to the dole queue. In recent decades, while the rising tide may have lifted the billionaires' yachts, smaller boats have been dashed on the rocks, and Nottingham knows this better than most places. Our level of productivity is close to the national average, yet our household incomes are amongst the lowest in the country. An increase in GDP means little to the income 
of a disabled person reliant on benefits that this government refuses to raise. It would not lift the wages of a worker in an ununionized workplace with bosses who refuse to pass on to their staff their bumper profits. And it would not improve anyone's living standards if the gains of go growth go straight into offshore bank accounts. GDP just isn't an adequate measure of what matters to people. Its rise alone does little to make the majority of people's lives better. And the UK is a poster child for this. Over the last decade, GDP has risen. But has that led to higher incomes? No. Most people are worse off than they were in 2008. I was 11 in 2008. Some of you, I'm sure, were much younger. And now, well, no. I, I take the point that you were much younger. Um, <laughs> and now, while this country battles a cost of living crisis, the rich continue to cash in while most working people lose out. So last year, incomes for the poorest 14 million people fell by 7.5%, while the richest fifth saw theirs increase by 7.8%. It's clear that without intervention, without prioritizing tackling this gaping inequality and redistributing wealth, this situation will only worsen. And this brings me to another group that I'm proud to represent. At 26 years old, I'm the UK's youngest MP and alongside most of this room, I'm a member of a generation that will be poorer than our parents. A generation that spends half our income renting ex-council flats that our landlords bought in the 1980s with a spare change they found down the back of their sofa. Our wages now lining their pockets as they hoard more and more housing. Because while the media decries our spending habits, it's not avocado toast or Netflix subscriptions that is to blame for our lack of financial security. High levels of economic inequality means our social contract is broken. The value of assets continues to grow, while wages do not. It makes people's life chances even more dependent on the assets of their parents, with wealth passed down from generation to generation. It means no matter how hard we work, buying a house or achieving a comfortable standard of living is increasingly out of reach for so many of us, never mind closing the gap between um, on, on the wealthiest as they hoover up yet more property in an ever more vicious cycle. Because extreme wealth in our society is rarely earned. It's gained through a combination of luck, inheritance, rent-seeking, and exploitation. We should feel no qualms redistributing what has not come through hard work, but far too often has been stolen from wages and through tax avoidance, which is not invested back into our economy, but squirreled in tax havens or fueling our housing crisis. Evidence suggests that the level of inequality we have is even hurting the economic growth that the opposition argues is so important. In fact, the International Monetary Fund, yes, those notorious Marxists at the IMF, now consider that high levels of inequality can be detrimental to economic stability and for sustained long-term growth. And that's because inequality leads to weaker demand and lower consumption, as those kept at the bottom struggle to even afford the, the basic essentials. 
It wastes opportunity and talent as kids growing up in poverty don't realise their full potential as adults. And also highly unequal societies are less likely to invest in public infrastructure and more likely to have economic policies that benefit the finance sector at the expense of more productive parts of our economy, which of course can in turn discourage private investments. The IMF believes that policies can be designed to tackle inequality without negative repercussions for growth. Policies that aim to reduce economic inequality could include increasing the minimum wage and benefits for those who can't work, lifting anti-trade union laws to strengthen workers' ability to negotiate for higher pay, taxing and redistributing wealth, such as through increasing capital gains tax and using the funds to finance public investment that benefits all of us. By voting for this motion tonight, you will not be sacrificing economic growth. You will simply be agreeing that a situation where the fruits of productivity do not benefit working people is intolerable. That we cannot continue to live in a society where billionaires' bank balances swell at the same rate as food bank queues. That the government has condemned people to poverty and could take action right now to alleviate it. If you agree with those points, vote with the eyes tonight. Well, Mr. President, may I begin by saying what an immense pleasure it is to see you in the chair, the great Hackintosh who began his campaign hacking my wife, who was last regularly in this chamber in 1992, has now spectacularly succeeded getting elected, if you remember, to uh, promising to give scholarships and, and YouTube channels that would help people learn to debate and enhance membership rights. And I, I've been looking around, I haven't seen all of those pledges yet delivered, but he still has another week in the job. And don't worry, Charlie, if you don't complete it in the week, you will be eminently qualified then for a position on Keir Starmer's front bench. So it's, it's very nice to see you here, and it's also a great pleasure uh, to be able to acknowledge the other speakers. Uh, beginning, of course, with Chloe on my side, who's just shown me the, the most extraordinary thing. She, she tattoos every position she's held here on her ankle. Now, I was glad to see, because I, I was thinking chairman of consultative committee, but actually she's, she's abbreviated it. Chairman of consultative committee chief, you know, of the Oxford Union would have been a bit much, but, but let's see if we, we can get some more tattoos on there uh, before the term is over. And, of course, my old friend uh, Juan Davila, who was president, as you heard, last term of ALCA, having previously twice withdrawn his campaign. Now, malicious wagging tongues will have you believe that this is because on both occasions he was seduced by the other <laughs> candidate. I, uh, and I've met both the other candidates, but I, I, I prefer to believe that actually he's just fundamentally a great gentleman. Uh, and, he, and he stepped aside. Think of him as a kind of a negative Boris Johnson, as it were. You know, the, the former PM is, is busily peopling the country with his platinum-haired Targaryen children. Uh, Juan is still uh, an old-fashioned gent. And you can hear that old-fashioned British sensibility in the awkward and strangled cry that he has made his campaign slogan for tomorrow's election, namely, come. <laughs> and, uh, 
Did I get away with that? His parents are in the room. Um, and of course, very nice to see, to see Disha. Um, Disha, as you, as you just heard, dropped economics. You heard it in her speech. And it, oh, either she dropped economics or economics dropped her. There's often a kind of, oh, it's not you, it's me. But, but I, I'm, glad, uh, I'm glad that you've done so, probably, Disha, to do something more useful, right? Uh, unlike Jonathan Portis, who went on, as we heard, to become the chief economic advisor at the Cabinet Office under Gordon Brown, and therefore, I think, has done more to reverse growth without the assistance of a major pandemic or war than anyone else <laughs> in the country. Uh, look, ladies and gentlemen, it's, um, it, it, it's, it's, it's a, this is a debate we would not be having in Lusaka or in Lagos or in my native Lima. Being able to talk about other things mattering more than economic growth is a great first world privilege. We're sitting here warm and well fed because we're benefiting from decisions that have put us into the place where we can say, as every previous generation has, there are more important things than the material prosperity of a society. Aren't we alienated by all this money grubbing? Do you know what? Every generation has said that. Going back at least to the Roman Republic, and every generation, including this one, thinks that we are the generation that gets to draw the line because the, the progress up until now has seen that today's luxuries become tomorrow's necessities, by all means. No, indeed not, and I'm, uh, thank you, I will come on to that, because the, the greatest inequality is precisely in the places which have the greatest poverty, and the, the best way to equalize them, as I'll come on to in a moment, is to spread the wealth. But the point I'm making is that every generation says, we, we've reached enough, we've reached this point of saturation. And there is a certain presumptuousness in assuming that it falls to us to make that call. Look, here's the thing. Growth is an extraordinary magic wand. It's like that, you know, that sonic screwdriver that Doctor Who has. I'm never quite clear how it's supposed to work or what it's supposed to do, but it opens every door. And it does the most incredible things. And growth is that sonic screwdriver, right? It gives us poverty reduction. It gives us maintaining a congenial human habitat, or saving the planet, if you want to put it uh, more briefly. It gives us time and quality time. And, indeed, it gives us equality. How do I say that? Well, first on poverty reduction. Look, in 1990, the United Nations set itself a target of halving absolute poverty or extreme poverty defined as people then living on a dollar a day in 1990 prices, in 1990 price, right? That was 36% of the world population in 1990. And just before the pandemic hit, it had fallen to 8.4%. And where were the falls sharpest? Precisely in those Asian and African economies that integrated into the global market system. We're not going to be able to tackle environmental problems without wealth. We're not going to be able uh, to preserve habitats or develop uh, strategies to reverse carbon emission without wealth and prosperity. Here's a, a fact that is little known. Since the 80s, we have, as a planet, seen a net reforestation, reforestation of an area roughly the size of Alaska. But that reforestation has happened overwhelmingly in the wealthy parts of the world, above all in North America and Europe, enough to offset the continuing deforestation in Indonesia, Brazil, and so on. Why? Because when you get to a certain level of wealth, you don't need slash-and-burn uh, agriculture. You don't need uh, firewood for cooking. If we want to help the Brazilians and the Indonesians get to a place where they don't do this anymore, the best thing we can do 
is to raise GDP. And if we want to preserve habitats, the best thing we can do is to allow animals to live next to wealthier people. You know, 50 years ago, lions, tigers, and wolves were all endangered. What's happened now? Lions are still endangered, tigers are flatlined, wolves have seen their numbers explode. Why? Because lions, by and large, live in poor countries, tigers live in middle-income countries, and wolves live in rich countries. Wealth gives us time. One of the arguments that one hears over and over again is people say, well, okay, maybe efficient, but it isn't, the, it isn't what really matters. What about the things that are really valuable, like spending time with your family or, or listening to good music or going for a nice walk? My friends, it is GDP growth that gives us those opportunities. The fact that you have a dishwasher and you don't need to do all the washing up by hand means you can go for that nice walk in the country. The fact that you can drive to work instead of taking two buses and walking means you have time to listen to that Beethoven concert. The fact that you don't need to spend seven days a week just to put food on your kid's table means that you have the weekend to play with them. And I want to make this clear. Those of us on this side are not saying that equality is a bad thing. There's loads of evidence that more equal societies are happier. But the way to get to equality is to expand people's opportunity. You look at the countries that are the most unequal, you measure it by the Gini coefficient, you measure it by, uh, as we heard from Disha, the, the, the amount of wealth owned by the top 1%. What are the, the most unequal countries in the world? It's Mozambique, it's Zambia, it's South Africa, Suriname, right? If you want to tackle inequality, then allow people to get rich by removing barriers. And that's the miracle that has seen our societies reach this pinnacle of literacy, longevity, health, and happiness. When civilization began, to a single approximation, we were all in bondage. Oppression, slavery, and serfdom were almost universal. We all lived under kind of slave empires, and that was true until an eye blink ago. When this extraordinary revolution happened, and we moved from status to contract, and people were able to make freestanding agreements, one with another, rather than having their position defined by birth or caste or status. And that meant that for the first time, the way to get on was not to suck up to the people above you, to the kings or the commissars or the high priests, but to produce things for the general population. The great economist Joseph Schumpeter said the achievement of capitalism is not to provide more silk stockings for princesses, it's to bring them within the reach of factory girls. We heard about trickle-down economics. I've got to tell you, no economist of any mainstream school has ever argued anything so absurd as the thought that you enrich the poor by giving the rich more money to spend on their swimming pools and Lamborghinis. The phrase was invented by a speechwriter of FDR's in 1930. It was a grotesque caricature then, and it has remained one of the most enduring zombie arguments for the intervening hundred years. You Google uh, trickle down, you'll get it, uh, you'll be prompted with rebutted, fake, you know, false, you'll, you will not find a single person arguing for it because no one has ever done so. What we believe in on this side is trickle up. The way that you enrich yourself now is by offering a service to everyone around you. Ours is the first society that has structured the incentives so that instead of exploitation, you prosper by offering a decent service. A final point. I don't think that the people on this side can really believe what they're saying. And I don't think that if you walk through the eye door this evening, you can really believe it. And here's why. If you did, 
you'd be behaving differently. What you spend on your iPhone would feed a family in the favelas. What you spent on your last pair of jeans would have paid for a cataract operation and given some guy in the DRC his sight back. Now, you could take the line that, yes, equality is so important, we should all give away what we have. Like the unfortunate guy in Mark 19 who says, what do I need to do? Jesus gives him the pretty tough advice, if thou wilt be perfect, sell that thou hast and give to the poor. The guy can't do it. And neither can most of us. And I think there's a reason why we don't. Because deep down we know that even if you did that, even if you sold everything you had, you would not end poverty. All you would do is add one more poor person, i.e. yourself. The real route to ending poverty is removing obstacles and spreading opportunities. The way people get rich every time, in every age, in every nation, is through secure property rights and free contract and personal autonomy. So, when you vote tonight, vote for freedom. Vote for opportunity. Vote to extend to that 70% of humanity who can't yet afford washing machines the same privileges that we take for granted and that allow us to sit here warm and comfortable and scorn the miracle that has brought us to our present prosperity. Good evening, everyone. Thank you, President, Officers of the Union, for inviting me this evening to, I think it's Oxford. Delighted to be back in the Union some 30 years after my last visit. Um, and that was an equally interesting experience. Um, maybe I'll be telling people who was also in the debating chamber with me that day. Um, I come to you as a Canterburyan, so a little bit nervous in front of you, not quite sure whether I'll get out of the building alive. Uh, but I can assure you I've had all the vaccinations and inoculations that I need, so I haven't brought any terrible illnesses from the fens that any of you are not immune to. So you should be and ought to be fine. The proposition in front of us this evening is a very interesting one, and we've heard some excellent arguments from the opposition. Uh, sorry, yes, the opposition, Chloe and uh, Lord Hanan. And the proposition is that this house would prioritize economic equality over economic growth. And I'm going to ask you all to open your eyes when you vote later on. So open your eyes and see what's going around you in this country. Ask yourself the question before you vote about what is the most important thing that we have to do as a country following the experiences that we have gone through in the last quarter of a century. I'll just ask you to think about that for a second, and then I'll go in to my main points. Of course, and we've been told this, growth is very important. Last month, I published a paper in the Economic History Review looking at GDP in the long run, in the long durée. In 1700, the, in constant terms, the income per head in av on average was 1,650 pounds in today's terms. In 2020, it was 30,000 pounds, a 17-fold increase. And 
the opposition would argue that that has generated better health, longevity, one of the most wonderful things that we have. We're able to see our, children, our parents as children and get to know them later on in life and understand the transfer of knowledge. It's the most important thing that we have in front of us in a way that previous generations have never been able to do. Law and order has improved over that long run. It's a much less violent society that we have in front of us than we had in the past. Democracy has developed, believe it or not. It has, it's moved on. We have more questioning of the democratic officials. We have institutions that are independent, providing scrutiny, the press, and even social media all play a very important role in transferring your views into decision-making of policy. All of that sounds like a good thing. All of that sounds like something that we should want to have and that growth has delivered to us. Peace, apart from the horrendous invasion of Ukraine by Putin this time last year, the European continent benefited from peace throughout my lifetime. That, of course, is also something that we might say is a result of growth. Education, mass education, whether it's at universities or elsewhere, has also happened, we are told, as a function of growth. And yet, and also, actually, I've missed inequality. One of the great trends that we've seen in the 20th century was a reduction in wealth inequality and a reduction in income inequality. And the people opposite would tell us that that is a function of growth. But unfortunately, they've got it all the wrong way around. It's successive governments that have tackled these critical issues over time, whether it's the Great Reform Act of 1832, the agreements that we had after World War II to guarantee peace in our lifetime, the beverage report that guaranteed full employment and education and the health service. These were the preconditions of economic growth. These were governments and policymakers and politicians fighting often against the forces of conservatism to bring about progressive change in an economy that led to better lives for most people. Why not? Uh, you're going around in circles. I've been very clear that growth is not the thing that's driving all those public goods that I listed. That it's the consistent and careful addressing of those issues by successive waves of people who cared about them that have brought about a better society than would otherwise have been the case. And that is the contention I want you to think about, not only today, but for the rest of your career and the rest of your life. You need to do what is right. And to work out what is right, you need to open your eyes and see what the problems are and address those problems. Growth is the byproduct of a society and a set of individuals doing the right thing time and time again. And that is where, in fact, I'm sorry to say, as a society, we have fallen down in the last quarter of a century. And that's the main reason why our economic growth has lagged that of our trading partners and um, has lagged our previous historical performance. There was a time, I'm proud to say, this country was at the forefront of social and economic reform and change. And now it is not. 
And I think that is the main cause of the slowdown in growth that we're suffering. So I would say don't focus on growth, focus on the right thing. And let me take an example, it's a hypothetical example, of a government that decides to target growth. Just imagine there's a government that comes in without having won a general election. Let's suppose the Prime Minister and the Chancellor say, we'll adopt a growth target. The growth target we'll adopt is far and above a higher than the capacity of the economy to grow at that rate. Let us suppose they adopt a target of 2.5%. And let us suppose the target in the economy or the achievable rate of growth is 1%. Let us suppose that self-same government targets growth to such an extent it doesn't want to take any advice from the Office of Budget Responsibility, the Bank of England. It gets rid of the top of the Treasury. It, doesn't, it does so little that the National Institute of Economic and Social Research had to sit down and explain all the problems with that growth strategy and consistently throughout the whole of the autumn. Now, of course, that would never happen. We'd never have that. It would just never happen in this country that we'd have such an idea happening. Because if you target growth, you end up doing the wrong things. And I'm asking us all to think about the right thing. Let me give you another example of a country that targeted growth. Five-year plans, collectivization, the Soviet Union, if we put growth above everything else, we will stop doing the right things for people out there. The targeting of growth that we've had in the country has been driven by low interest rates, that's increased asset prices, that's meant that those who've had favorable initial conditions have benefited over that period. Those without those favorable initial conditions, and people in this room, I'm happy to say, you've already largely won I'll come to you in just a second. You can keep standing, it's good for you. <laughs> uh, people in this room have already, mostly already won the game of life. You're at the second best university in the world. <laughs> and I want to congratulate you for that. But met, uh, no, no, I think he was first. Thank you very much. I was gonna say, I agree at MIT as well. I've never, not familiar with the uh, university. Yes, sir. Five-year plans were all about economic growth and industrialization. Uh, I'm not an expert on communism, but I know communism doesn't lead to much equality, and I'll tell you that very straight. Okay, but thank you for the question. What's happened with the economy that we've got, the growth that we've had has been through the city of London, high-value services, uh, and asset prices that have gone up, has made it a country in which those without those initial conditions have been forced to work in low productivity firms, retail, um, hotels, restaurants, where wages are low. And what we've had is the development of what we now can term the working poor, where both members of the household are going out to work, but they're still not earning enough to pay the bills. And we have a large fraction of society reliant on state aid. And that is a world in which I don't think we should consider to be acceptable. What we need is the policymakers to focus on doing the right thing, create better jobs with higher pay, so that people who are doing the right thing by going out to work can meet their bills uh, in a way that allows them not to rely on state aid. The shocks that we've had in the last 
13 or 14 years, the financial crisis, the uncertainty over our relationship with Europe, COVID, the increase in energy prices, have all had an undue and amplificatory impact on income inequality and on the income of those at the bottom of the ladder. That means society has become more vulnerable, more problematic for many people. We heard a few minutes ago about how warm and well-fed we all are. I'm afraid that's not the case for many people in this country. Food bank usage is at a post-war high. Many people are unable to pay their food bills or their heating bills, and there's a requirement for charity and for state aid to help them. This is not the position we should be in, as we were sold by the opposition, as the sixth richest economy in the world. I've been director of the National Institute for seven years in May, and I've opened my eyes to all the problems that I'm seeing as I go around the country that need to be addressed as a priority. It is a question of doing the right thing. And I finish, if I may, with the words of one of my heroes, Gil Scott Heron, who died 12 years ago in May, who was asked, if you can do something for someone, why not do it? And that's what he said just before he died. So I would say to you all, if you can help people who are suffering from inequality and an inability to meet their bills, why not help them? Thank you very much. Um, thanks very much, and uh, thanks very much for inviting me here tonight. Um, I have to say, uh, you know, because the student speakers on, from the floor don't have to take quite such a binary approach, actually I had quite a lot of sympathy with what the last few speakers from, uh, from the opposition um, said uh, about the need for balancing. Um, so I'm going to try and be a bit, I, mean, I know you don't teach economics at uh, Oxford, so let me be quite boring and do both a bit of theory and a bit of empiricism. Um, first, the theory. Um, I think it is actually, tells you something that actually, although we economists are frequently parodied as being obsessed with growth and being obsessed with GDP, the two economists here, and we're both pretty mainstream economists as it happens, um, are both supporting the motion. Um, and that's because the economic tradition, the tradition of the great English and Scottish economists, um, uh, um, Adam Smith, um, John Stuart Mill, Jeremy Bentham, that give the basis for economic theory are quite clear that growth in itself, economic output, is not the goal of a well-functioning economic system, but rather it is the maximization of social welfare, utility, of course, which you probably do learn about in PPA, uh, utilitarianism, uh, um, which is sort of the foundation of how we think about economics. So what does that actually mean um, in when it comes to whether you prioritize growth or equality? Well, um, the sort of simple of that, if you want to maximize social welfare, you want to make as many people as possible, as well off, as satisfied with their lives, um, as happy as possible. Um, so, at a very simple level, um, let, examining the motion, what does prioritizing, let, let's suppose that this actually is, a mo and, and I think the last two speakers I want to say made a good point of why the motion isn't a great motion in terms of drafting, but 
what would it actually mean if we could shoot, if we could actually decide to prioritize between growth or inequality? Well, take a simple numerical example. We can have an economy of two people where economic output is, say, 100,000 pounds, and Jagjit gets it all, and I don't get anything at all. Um, or we have a choice, and we're not talking about policy, and we simply have a choice. Um, we have an economy, um, again, with two people, where Jagjit and I each get 40,000 pounds. Um, economy one is the one where you prioritize growth. Economy two is the one where you prioritize equality. Indeed, it could be 50-30, and you'd still be prioritizing equality. Which is a better economy? Well, the problem with the first economy, obviously, is that I'm starving and homeless. And Jagjit is very happy. Um, in the second economy, Jagjit is a bit less happy. But I'm a lot more happy um, with my 40,000 pounds. He's down to 40,000 pounds, but he's still doing OK. Um, I am no longer starving. Um, and that at very simple level um, is what simple welfare economics tells you. The second economy has lower output, but it is a higher welfare uh, um, economy. It is the one that any classical economist, this is not an ideological thing, any classical economist would say that social welfare is better off, in the, is higher in the second economy. So if you really have the choice, if what you're really talking about is prioritization, then equality, you know, this is the simple conception of the diminishing marginal utility of income. The extra 10,000 pounds is worth more to the person who has less in the first place. It's very simple, tells you that equality is a priority. Um, but what, you know, of course, and this is why the motion isn't perfect, we don't, we can't snap our fingers and choose between these two economies. What does that choice actually look like in practice? Um, and interestingly, a couple of the speakers on the other side alluded to from a rather different uh, uh, rather contradictorily, in fact, uh, the record of the last uh, 20 or 30 years. Um, um, with one saying, oh, growth sort of stopped in 2008, 2010, and since then we've had very low growth, and it's all been terrible. And well, that's true, of course. But that's not, as he said, because we stopped prioritizing growth and started prioritizing inequality. We've had a government for the last 10 years which really doesn't give a damn about inequality. We know that. Um, I, as um, Dan Hannan said, worked, um, well, I was a civil servant. I was a civil servant actually from 1987. I worked for government for both parties. I, I didn't leave until 2011. Um, uh, but during the sort of meat of my career, I worked for a government which had as its foremost policy objective, the one objective that Gordon Brown and Tony Blair seemed to agree on, the elimination, the eradication of child poverty. Um, and that's the single part of my life in some sense that I'm most proud of was working in that at the Department of Work and Pensions. Um, and we did indeed make it a priority. We did indeed devote a lot of policy effort, a lot of resources to doing that. And of course, um, it was a genuine priority. Did that harm growth? Well, no, we had higher growth then, as the speaker from the other side quite rightly said. We had significantly higher growth then um, than we've had with a government which has chosen, supposedly because we, need, we needed it to restore growth, to stop paying, um, you know, to, to cut benefits to people who choose to have more than two children. We had higher growth than when we 
uh, uh, then than we did with a government which claims to have prioritised growth by um, seeking to cut taxes for the better off. Um, so we do have a we, you know, we we have some experience in this country of what happens when you prioritise poverty um, and you try and do something about inequality um, and what that delivers in terms of both inequality and growth, and we have some experience of what happens when you do the opposite. Um, and that is not something that is unique to this country either. Um, we have a fair degree of empirical evidence from around the world, um, as Nadia said, referring to the, uh, uh, to the IMF, about um, what, uh, what is actually good for growth. So the other way of framing the, the, this question is perhaps a more sensible way, and, and, you know, and, and here trying to give some credit to the, to the opposition, is, is, you know, is your view that you need growth Let's suppose that we both care about growth and inequality, and I think it's reasonable to say that pretty much everybody who's spoken on both sides does say that growth is good and inequality is bad. Fine. Is your prioritization, your view, that you need more growth to reduce inequality, you need growth first and inequality later, or do you need to reduce growth in order to generate, uh, reduce inequality in order to generate growth? And I think the empirical evidence across countries of the last 30 years is pretty clear that it is the latter which matters. High, particularly in advanced economies, in countries like the UK and US, we have found that rising inequality, failing to address inequality in all its dimensions, as Jagdit said, um, income inequality, social inequality, education inequality, these are bad for growth. So um, I, you know, I, I don't think that ultimately uh, um, that, that if you frame the question that way, what is the priority? What do we need to do to deliver what we all agree on, a, uh, uh, um, both lower inequality, higher growth, and ultimately higher social welfare for, for all of us? We need to start with the roots of our, uh, 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 of our current malaise, and that is indeed uh, inequality. And so reducing inequality we'll end up by delivering that better outcome which we all want. I'll stop there. Thank you. Well, uh, uh, thank you, um, Mr. President, for inviting me here to the Oxford Union. It's a great honor and a privilege, but there's a better reason why I'm here tonight. The rest of my party are somewhere in a hotel at a bonding session in woolly jumpers. So I'm very grateful for you getting me out of that. Uh, I'd also, um, I suppose I ought to thank the, the ghostwriter who helped me provide the speech, Isabel. Um, she's got all my uh, WhatsApp messages, but thankfully, <laughs> It's not Isabel Outshot, it's Isabel Jackson, who's um, my senior parliamentary assistant. Now, in the House of Commons, my goodness me, I thought I was coming to a civilised house tonight, having left the House of Commons. <laughs> my God, you're worse. Um, now, I, I have to, in the House of Commons, you have to find something nice to say about your, the previous speaker. And actually, it's very easy to find something nice to say about Johnson, because he made my case. Um, what we, they were wonderful speakers on the opposition. Unfortunately, they weren't addressing the motion. Now, when you come and vote, 
You can agree with that lot. But vote for the motion. Now, obviously, you're going to do it anyway, because there's three speakers before me on my side. Now, the danger is, of course, when I speak, that it will go the, the other way. But the question isn't about equality. It was about equality being the governing factor. The, it wasn't that we don't agree. You know, growth is good, and you've all agreed that, but you want equality. Well, that's fine. But that's not what the motion says. It says the goal in itself is economic equality, and that's a nonsense. Now, because I was coming to the, the Oxford Union, um, when I go to the Cambridge Union, I don't prepare anything because I can log it, but I thought you lot were more intelligent. Awesome. Anyway, I decided, to, I decided to write something, so we'll see how far we get before you stop me. Um, the proposers of this motion want you to believe that the opposition wants to make the rich richer and the poor poorer. A catchy slogan, but in no way connected to reality. By the way, one of our, you sir, kindly said, um, we want a better tomorrow. And then I turned and saw Edward Heath peering at me. <laughs> That, would you believe, was our manifesto commitment under uh, Edward Heath. Now, this has really got nothing to do with the motion, but since you guys didn't speak much about the motion, I'm, I, I thought I might as well follow your example. When the UK voted for Brexit in 2016, Brexiteers like me wanted to cast off the yoke of EU regulation and go for growth. By the way, I was the poor man's lever. I wasn't like Dan, part of this vote-leave elite. I was the, the grassroots lot, the, you know, the ones with Farage and people like that. Um, I just want to make that clear. I didn't want Dan to be... We argued for the opportunity to dispense with petty, petty rules, putting onerous demands on businesses and unleash the potential of the UK economy. And the trouble is when you have a speech prepared, you have to be able to turn the pages over. It, it, it may have come as a shock, and it certainly did, to David Cameron and the Liberal elite and backing Remain, just how well that message resonated with working class communities. But it was no surprise to us. The big government socialist philosophies of the European Union stand in contrast to the values of hard work and just reward, underpinning those communities. I toured the country with grassroots out, and the message I heard over and over again was, they didn't want handouts, they wanted hand-ups. They wanted to be aspirational. They wanted to improve their lot. They didn't want to be given stuff by the state. Point of information? Of course. You say, uh, isn't Germany, which has much higher growth than us, in the EU? Um, yes, Germany's in the EU. Um, <laughs> the, the proposition would have us prioritise economic equality over economic growth. But the people they would claim to represent tonight do not want their help. These people recognise that economic growth drives job creation, wage growth and tax revenues to fund public services. They want the tools to succeed, not a condescending shift in economic policy, which this motion calls for. When we talk about economic growth, we're talking about the creation of wealth, increasing the size of the pie so that everyone, everyone's slice gets bigger. Have you remembered that I'm a Boris supporter? That should have been cake. Um, <laughs> The bigger, the bigger the cake, the more everyone gets a bit. When the Chancellor sits down at his desk in the morning, he knows that without economic growth, his tax receipts will shrink with falling revenues, and any government's other policy goals become redundant. And that's the point 
about ecology. If you don't get the growth, you can't do all the things that that side would like to do. I'm going to make a party point here, which you made a party point about me. Every Labour government believes in equality and things. Oh, by the way, isn't it true that every Labour government leaves office with more people unemployed when they come into power? They want to do the right thing, but they mess it up because they believe in equality, not growth. Uh, the proposers of this motion want to reject the only way of making policy with a proven track record of lifting people out of hardship and into prosperity. And yet nothing I've heard so far has convinced me they have solved any of the challenges that have plagued every socialist government in history. Now, of course, I wrote that before I heard what you had to say, but it's true. You didn't even try to address that argument. You didn't, want to, you didn't try to explain to me, without growth, how are you going to do all those things that are wonderful by making people more uh, equal? Every attempt, I'll stop now. now you know what we say here, chuntering from the front bench. Go on, if you want to intervene. No, you see, you don't. I won the argument on that one. Every attempt to create a utopia of economic equality has resulted in terrible failure. And any attempt to prioritise economic equality over economic growth would end similarly. This issue is further compounded when you consider whether the proposition would have us strive for economic equality at a national level, or if it would be international. In this case, economic progress in the UK risks leaving developing nations further behind. Economic growth does not have the same moral dilemmas in the global market. If the demand from the UK grows because our economy is expanding, this is good for everyone. Post-Brexit, by removing free movement of people from Europe, the UK has introduced a more global, outward-looking, points-based immigration system. The UK now welcomes workers from across the world, many from much poorer countries than in Europe. Not only does this benefit economic growth, but it also provides additional income to poorer nations from workers who are able to send higher wages home to support their families and communities. And of course, when they go back home, trained in this country, they do even better. Every single political system that has ever existed that has espoused equality as its ultimate goal has handed huge power to the state and been rife with incompetence and corruption. Inevitably, the poorest who those in power claim to be helping suffer the most. I concede, and this is a point that was raised many times on the, uh, on the proposers' benches, that excessive accumulation of wealth can seem vulgar. However, profit essential is an extremely powerful motivator. Looking at the Forbes list of 10 richest men in the world, the companies behind their fortunes include Tesla, Amazon, Microsoft, and Google. These companies have brought forward genuine, groundbreaking ideas and innovations. They don't just make their bank balances better or the, their employees better, but they've actually imp improved the quality of life for everyone. But 
But if, as this motion says, the pursuit of economic equality is the main thing, you couldn't have to have that. They'd have to be checked. There'd have to be state intervention to stop them because they're making too much money. And then we wouldn't have had all the benefits that they have produced. State intervention would drastically, drastically reduce wealth through taxation. However, changing the level of taxation prompts behavioural changes. So higher taxes do not always lead to increased revenues at HMRC. And this wasn't mentioned, and I'm not quite sure why the opposition bench chose not to mention this. The top 10% of income tax payers currently contribute over 60% of income tax receipts. The bottom 50% of income tax payers contribute under 10%. The government needs revenue to ensure there's a robust safety net for those who need it and to fund certain essential public services. It is the high earners who contribute more than their fair share through taxes. <laughs> you know, when I wrote that, I wondered if anyone would do it. Yeah, but that, that's a slightly different point. It's a well-made point. But what the motion calls for is that you will prioritise economic equality. And uh, I'm going to run out of time anyway, so I'll ignore the speech. But um, what, what the situation is, if we made... We're levelling up. Our government is levelling up. Well... <laughs> Yeah, okay, okay. Yeah, I tend to laugh at that as well. But, um, but, it, but, 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 what the, what the actual policy, uh, the motion wants us all to do is to level down. We could all be equally poor and we would achieve what the, um, what the motion requires. And that's basically what you would have to do. No, that is not what the motion said. If the motion had said that, I might have been on that side of the dispatch box. Probably not, but you never know. Um, it, now, are you digging that because you support me, or is there some meaning to it? It's a time restraint. How many of them have I got? Half an hour? About two or three minutes. <laughs> um, now, look, I, I, I just want to bring it back to everyone in this room. Uh, I'm not sure... You would have all have worked as hard as you did in your previous academic careers if the reward for your efforts was not potentially a mission to, let me be very polite here, one of the top universities in the world. Uh, similarly, if taxes are too high and talented people cannot see the return on investment for their time making their businesses profitable, or studying for professional exams or learning a trade, they simply would not do it. Well, I, <laughs> hang on a minute. Yeah, I'm nearly finished, but all right. Is it not a point has a certain amount of gross income that a person's wealth becomes excessive? Like, I, I don't think it makes perfect sense for us to tax every uh, dollars in America, every dollar over 100 million a year at a 99% rate. That makes sense. 
Is he American? <laughs> How could someone from America suggest that to me? Um, that, look, I, 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 I mix with many billionaires as it happened because I chair the all-party group for American football. In, in, <laughs> and the owners of American football clubs, I have to remember whether they're billionaires or multi-billionaires, they seem quite nice people to me. But in, in, the, in the UK, in, in, in the UK, we have progressive taxation, and I proved the point earlier on with the figures, and that's the way to do it. But not at 99%, because the people wouldn't be here. They'd change the, So you have to... Oh, go on again. Uh, this was something, Dan, wasn't it something Labour... Way back in the 60s or something, they charged 101% on your income. It didn't work. Um, <laughs> Because you don't actually, what you didn't do, if you're that rich, you find ways of, you know, becoming a non-dom. No, I'm not allowed to talk about that. It's, um, <laughs> but, it, but it's true. So you've got to remember there are taxation rates cause behavioural change. And there's an argument, actually, if you cut taxation rates uh, that, that have to occur, actually you finish up with more income. So um, something that perhaps the chance to look, about, look at. Um, look, I can't remember where this speech is, so uh, <laughs> let me just conclude by saying, if the mo look, in the House of Commons, bizarrely, we are supposed to look at the motion on the order paper, which actually I do, and then vote the way that, as a member of parliament, now I'm going to come to your point. Um, <laughs> And, and that means quite often I'm voting against what is called the government whip. Um, I, by the way, it was very kind. Someone introduced me as deputy leader, former deputy leader of the House of Commons. Somebody said that. Yeah, I managed to do it for about seven weeks before they sacked me. Um, so I've been all my life an independent member of the House of Commons. And I, I, no, I can't take it because I'm being dinged. Um, basically, uh, the situation, I read, I read the, what's on the read what's on the order paper, and then I vote whichever way I think is fit, even if it means I'm voting with the Labour Party or, or whatever. Um, shame on that. Whereas other people, other members, just vote the way they're told. Don't vote the way you're told tonight. Not, don't wait because it's the right thing to vote against Peter Bowen. Do it against Dan Hannan. Because, well, no, not so much you, but me. <laughs> but do what is right. Read the exam paper. Read the motion and vote against it. You cannot seriously, in all fairness, vote for it. So I urge you to vote against the motion. Thank you so much.